0: If you talk to a Christian that's been reading the Bible for any length of time and you ask them their favorite book in the Bible or maybe their top three favorite books in the Bible, uh, probably 90% of the people you ask would put in that top three the book of Psalms. The Psalms are cherished by God's people, loved by God's people, and rightly so. The Psalms are filled with truth, and, and not just filled with truth, They're filled with truth that is presented in in beautiful, compelling, memorable ways. That's why we love the Psalms so much. And there in your notes, uh, I've given you a one-sentence summary of the book of Psalms. This comes from Dr. Kendall Easley. I'll give you this every week because I want you to get this in your head to kind of remind you of what the book of Psalms is about as a whole. He writes, God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer. Now just stop right there. That's that's an important statement. God is worthy of all praise and prayer. You see that theme repeated over and over and over again, that we are to praise Him. We are to uh, give Him our hallelujahs. He is worthy of our worship and praise. But then he writes, He's worthy of all praise and prayer thanksgiving and confidence, confidence. In other words, no matter what we're going through in life, we can trust God. And again, we'll see that in the Psalms over and over again because he says this is true whatever the occasion, he's worthy of praise, he's worthy of trust, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. And so that's a a, 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 a summary of the entire book. But then I want to give you this quote from John Piper, which helps us understand maybe a little bit, in a little bit deeper way, why the Psalms connect with us uh, as they do. He writes The Psalms are songs, they are poems, they are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important. And that's one of the reasons we just love the Psalms, because we connect with them on an emotional uh, level. And these Psalms these help us to understand how to deal with our emotions and how to come before God with whatever emotion we are experiencing. Now, notice there, John Piper says these the, the Psalms are songs, they are poems. The book of Psalms is 150 chapters, and it, basically what you have here is uh, a hymn book, a Hebrew hymn book. These are 150 hymns that were collected. Uh, there's a lot of conversation about who collected them and when were they were collected and how they were collected. But they were collected into five different books. The book of Psalms is made up of five different sections, 150 total psalms, and they are a collection of Hebrew hymns. So we are studying the Psalter. We're studying the the Hebrew hymn book and and learning from these songs of praise that God's people use. And we've made it to the second psalm, the second psalm. And uh, one commentator I read said the second psalm is placed here on purpose. Now remember last week I told you Psalm 1 is the perfect psalm to start the entire book because it deals with being righteous, being part of the community of the righteous, having a relationship with God, and then meditating and delighting in His words so you can be fruitful and strong and make a difference. And so Psalm 1 dealt with an individual's relationship with God and joining the community of other righteous people. That's Psalm 1. Psalm 2 here helps us to understand what's going on in human history. It, it kind of it it takes us to a 30,000-foot view of what's going on, it helps us to understand uh, where everything is headed and why things, the way, uh, why things are the way that they are. And so Psalm 2 is here just at the very beginning of the Psalter just to, just to kind of help us to understand uh, the, the worldview that we need to look at life with. And so let's read it together, Psalm 2. I'll read it for you. Read along with me. And then uh, we will uh, look at this under uh, four headings. First of all, uh, uh, Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. I want to just, again, walk through this kind of big picture psalm under uh, four different headings. And then I want to just share some kind of closing implications Uh, of this psalm for our lives the the first heading is this the world speaks first thing we see in this psalm is the world is speaking there in verses one through three why do the nations rage the people's plot in vain the kings of the earth set themselves together uh, set themselves the rulers take counsel together against the lord and against his anointed saying so the world's saying something what's the world saying let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords for, uh, from us. And so these three verses speak of the world. The, uh, those who do not know the Lord, those who are ungodly, the ungodly systems of this world raging against the one true God. Now I want you to notice several things here. First of all, notice the passion there in verse 1. It says, why do the nations rage? Why do they rage? There, there is uh, in the heart of... Of humanity, an enmity against God, an enmity against the Creator. God made us all, He made us all for a purpose, but uh, humanity, by and large, uh, well, all of humanity, has said, I want to go my own way. I want to do my own thing. I want to set my own agenda and live by my own rules. And Romans 1 says that humanity has, has pushed back the light in favor of darkness and begun to worship the creature rather than the creator. And notice the passion here. Uh, they're raging against God. Uh, the the word rage there, the Hebrew word, means to murmur or growl. It's a a word of anger. There's an anger against God. And, And you look around at Contemporary culture. You look at our society. You look at what's going on. You know, everything that used to be called right is now called wrong. Everything that used to be called wrong is now called right. Things are topsy turvy. Things are crazy. Things are weird. Uh, it's just it's it's unbelievable. What's happening out there? I mean, you you open the news on a on a uh, on a given day, and it's just you just don't know what you're going to see and what you're going to read and what you're going to be exposed to. And you say, why Why is it like it is? I mean, why are things so topsy-turvy right now? We are living in the midst of an ungodly world raging against God, raging against the Creator, raging against His will and His way. So notice the passion here against God, this, this growling, this murmuring, this anger against God. But then notice the plan Verse two. Why do the nation? Or verse one. Why do the nations rage? The peoples plot in vain. Not only is there anger against God, there is a settled, organized movement against God. It says the kings of the earth set themselves, um, set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against His anointed. And so again, there is this. There is this overarching plan when it comes to an ungodly world. People get together. Nations get together. Rulers get together. People get together and they rage against God and plot against God. Now, a biblical example of this is found over in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. What happens? Humanity gets together. God said, I want you to scatter and be fruitful and multiply. And they said, no, thank you. We don't want to scatter. We're going to stay together. And we're going to build a monument to ourselves. We're going to b- build this tower that reaches up into the heavens. And they were basically saying to God... We want what we want, not what you tell us to do. We're going to do our own thing. And they plotted together and built this great tower until God confused their languages and he scattered them over the face of the earth. That's just a, a biblical example. And, and by the way, that happened a long, 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 long time ago. Nothing new under the sun. And, and, and the Tower of Babel is still going on today. Different ways, different plans, different plots, But there's still this this movement of people coming together saying, how can we do what we want to do and push back what God tells us to do? Notice the plan. And then notice the purpose in verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You see, the world's anger, and this is in your notes, the world's anger and rebellion against God and His Son are driven by a reluctance to submit. It's what it is? A reluctance to submit. People in their pride and their hubris saying, "God, I know what you say, but I don't want to follow what you say. I don't want to do what you tell me to do. I want to do what I want to do. It is a reluctance to submit. They wanted to, the people here in Psalm 2 wanted to distance themselves from a God that holds people accountable to follow Him uh, exclusively. They did not want to bow their knees to His... Authority. I like how Charles Spurgeon says it about these first three verses. We have in these first three verses a description of the hatred of human nature against the Christ of God. So here in this psalm, the world speaks. The world is saying uh, with a collective voice, a collective conscience, how can we burst the bonds Uh, That God has over us. We we don't want to submit. We want to be free from the commandments and the principles and the precepts and the the truth of God. We want to do our own thing, set our own rules. We want to be free. And here's the irony of that. When people disregard God, when they disregard God's word, though they think they are chasing and pursuing freedom, they're actually rushing headlong into bondage. Because you and I understand, don't you, when you do things your own way and you ignore the ways of God, you are a prime candidate for Satan to destroy you. And sin binds you up and keeps you uh, bound. And so, here in the first part of this psalm, the world speaks. Secondly, God the Father speaks. So God has something to say to this opposition of an ungodly world. Look what it says in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath, terrify them in his fury, saying, so God's speaking here, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And I want you to notice a couple things here. First of all, notice the position of God. It says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Where's God's position? He's enthroned over the created order. He's enthroned over the earth. He is above us looking down. In fact, it says over in Ephesians 1, the earth is his footstool. So God is in a place of preeminence. God is in a place of authority. God is in a place of sovereignty. God is ruling and reigning over the universe. Uh, So so notice here that, that the Lord is not wringing his hands together, saying, oh my, what will I do? People are ignoring me. People are disregarding me. People are despising me. What, 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 what will I do? How am I going to handle this? You've heard it said that there are no emergency meetings of the Trinity in heaven. This verse reminds us of that. And it says there that he who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs. In, in other words, the great and mighty God, the creator of the universe, is not threatened by the ungodliness of humanity. God is on his throne. And we need to remember that. We feel ourselves feeling a bit anxious by the ways of this world, the the rebellion against God, the the overflow of rebellion against God's people. And we feel like, you know, oh, this is uncomfortable. I don't like the way things are headed. I'm worried about the future. And we feel that creeping up in our hearts. We need to remember God is on His throne. None of this has caught God by surprise. God knows what He's doing. God is ruling and reigning over the universe. And when man rages against God, God laughs. He's not threatened by the rebellion of man. But notice the proclamation of God, not just his position, but his proclamation, verse 6. As for me, the Lord says, God says seated on his throne, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What the Lord is saying here is this. As the creator of the universe, I've decided who the king is. And I've installed the king in Zion, Jerusalem, on my holy hill. One day he will come and... Return, and every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the king. So God is showing us, even though the nations are raging, the nations are in rebellion, the world is opposed to the ways of God. God is showing us, here's what's coming. The king will be enthroned. Now who's he talking about here? He's talking about his son, Jesus Christ. If you look there in your notes... God has plainly declared to the world that Jesus is the King of kings. That's what he's saying there uh, in verse 6. So so keep that in mind, but but, uh, turn over to Hebrews chapter 1 with me. Hebrews chapter 1. Look what it says in... Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Let see what God the Father says about God the Son. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds, all th- upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. So saying God has, God has lifted up Jesus as the one who, uh, who is to be exalted. And then turn over to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. New Testament book of Acts. Acts chapter 17, verse 31. This is Paul preaching on Mars Hill amongst a group of philosophers. And it says there, He, God, has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And so Paul's saying, You need to understand, there's coming a day when you will be judged, and the one who will be the judge, the one who will be calling the shots on that day, the one who will be crowned king is the one who was resurrected gloriously. He's speaking there of Jesus Christ. And so God here in Psalm chapter 2 is plainly declaring that this is where human history is headed. The, The nation's may rage, they may plot against God, but one day everyone will recognize King Jesus as uh, Lord. Now, the world has spoken. God the Father spoken. Now, God the Son speaks. Look back in Psalm 2, verse 7. I will tell of the decree... The Lord said to me, so the, the, the speaker shifts here. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You can dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So here, God the Son is speaking, saying the Father, he calls him the Lord there in verse 7, said to me, you are my son, I have begotten you, you. You are my son, I am your father, and I'm giving you the nations as your heritage, as your possession. So here's what that means. God the Father is giving Christ the Son the nations to possess and rule. That's what God is doing in human history. He's, God the Father is giving God the Son the nations to possess and rule. Now right now, The kingdom of Christ is invisible because it takes place in human hearts, right? He rules and reigns in our hearts. You can't see that with physical eyes. But the kingdom is growing. Every time someone is saved, King Jesus rules and reigns over another heart. But one day the invisible kingdom will become visible, Philippians 2. And Jesus Christ will return. Everyone will see Jesus and every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you look in your notes, everyone will experience Jesus as Savior or Judge. In fact, look what it says in verse 9 of Psalm 2. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In other words, if you do not submit to King Jesus in this life, when He returns and set everything right, you will deal with Him as Judge. And notice the imagery there, the the, the the breaking with a rod of iron, the dash in pieces like a potter's vessel. He's coming back to, to rule and to reign and to judge. That's why it says in verse 10, Therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. You need to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. That means pay homage to the Son. Recognize the Son. Lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And so He's saying there, God's going to set up His Son as King, and you can experience Him as Savior, or you can experience Him as Judge. That day is coming. But here's the fourth heading. Then we'll talk about some implications. We'll be done. We'll be we'll uh, we'll go to our prayer time. So the world is spoken in Psalm two. God the Father is spoken. God the Son is spoken. And you might, if you understand the doctrine of the Trinity, say, well, what about the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit going to have anything to say? Well, he does have something to say. Look what it says in verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. So you say, well, who wrote Psalm 2? Now, a lot of the Psalms have the author at the beginning. Uh, For example, look in Psalm 3, the next psalm. In small letters before verse 1, it says, a psalm of who? David. But notice there's no author ascribed in uh, chapter 2 or Psalm 2. So so who wrote Psalm 2? Well, the Bible tells us. Hold your place, but turn with me to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Interesting insight here. Acts chapter 4, verse 25. The context here is Peter and John had been threatened by the religious leaders and they said, don't preach anymore about Jesus. And they may say, well, we're going to keep preaching about Jesus. And they go back to the church, the gathered believers say, we're going to keep preaching about Jesus, but there's going to be some consequences. So it says there in verse 23 that they reported what the chief priests and elders, had said to them when they heard it, the church, the gathered church heard it. They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Notice that. Who through the mouth of our father David said by the Holy Spirit, and he quotes Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So a couple of things happening here. First of all, we know that David wrote Psalm 2 based upon this verse. But there's more happening here because it says David said by who? The Holy Spirit. So David wrote this psalm as inspired by the Holy Spirit, which I believe is true of the entire Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, God took human authors and breathed through them. So they were writing down the very words of God, which is truth with no mixture of error. But notice here, the Holy Spirit is the one speaking through David. And so when David's writing these words in Psalm 2, it is God, the Holy Spirit speaking. But notice the context of Acts 4. Acts 4 is a microcosm of Psalm 2. Psalm 2, the nation's raging. The nations are opposed to God. But God has set up his son, and one day everyone will bow before him, so pay homage to him now, kiss the son now. Don't experience him as judge. Experience him as Savior. Take refuge in Christ. And here in Acts 4, they're saying, okay, the nations are raging. They're going to beat us for preaching about Jesus. You said it through David by the Holy Spirit. The the nations are going to rage and plot in vain. And so the Holy Spirit speaks. If you look there in your notes, the Spirit inspired David to write this psalm as a grave warning. The Spirit inspired David to write this song as a grave warning. Choose Jesus now or be judged by Jesus later. God the Holy Spirit speaks. Now, I want to give you just four implications of Psalm 2 for the Christian. Four kind of takeaways uh, uh, from this psalm so that we can draw some application. Then we'll be through. First of all, this psalm speaks... To our confidence. This psalm speaks to our confidence. We should not cower into silence and irrelevance when opposed by the ungodly. Why? Because when all is said and done, God wins. (laughs) When all is said and done, God wins. So when we feel the opposition of this world against God and God's people, when we feel the, 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 um, the vitriol that is poured out on God's people for following Jesus, we dare not back away or cower into silence because we know that we're on the winning team. This psalm speaks to our confidence. Ralph Waldo Emerson famously wrote that for nonconformity, the world whips you with its displeasure. And that is certainly true of of Christianity. Because when you live the Christian life, you are in definite nonconformity to the ways of this ungodly world. And when that begins to happen, you will feel the displeasure, the wrath, the invective of this world. And when that happens... The, the, the default is going to be, well, maybe I just need to not cause a stir. Maybe I need to just kind of be quiet and, and, and not be so you know, outward with my faith. And that would be the wrong move because you are on the winning team. When all is said and done, God wins. So this psalm, hopefully Psalm 2 gives you some confidence. Even though the nations are raging, your God laughs. He is not threatened. Uh, recently uh, you may have read this. Hopefully you didn't watch it. I didn't watch it. It was on the Grammys. Um, I haven't watched the Grammys probably in 20 years. And even then, I don't think I've ever watched a full episode of the Grammys. But, you know, it's the music awards. And, and apparently there was a, 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 a very um, a, a, a satanic... Um, performance done by some very popular current pop stars, and just making a mockery of God, and just rebellion against God, and celebrating darkness and evil, and people are laughing about it and applauding it. And uh, you look at all that and think, what is going on? Psalm 2? Psalm 2. But when it's all said and done, God wins. And when it's all said and done, people aren't going to uh, want to make light of Satan Uh, they will want to uh, be followers of the one true God. So this psalm speaks to our confidence. Secondly, this psalm speaks to our convictions. This psalm speaks to our convictions here in verse 2, where God says, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Verse uh, 6, verse six, that's for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Um, The Lord is saying that I have chosen to place Jesus as king and call people to worship and follow him. This means that Jesus is the anointed son of God, the Messiah, and the only hope for the world. He tells us there in verse 6. He's the only one that can save. He's the only one worthy of worship. This psalm speaks to our commission. speaks to our commission. Notice what it says there in verse 8. This is, the, is God the Son speaking. Ask of me, the Father said, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth, your possession. So the Lord is saying that uh, the, the Father is saying to the Son, to honor you, I'm going to give you the nations for you to possess and rule and reign over. And this happens as, as people groups all over the face of the earth come to Christ. He gets worship for more and more nations. Every nation belongs to Jesus. And we're called to share the gospel so that people can be redeemed and give Jesus the praise He deserves. That's why we do missions, because people need to hear about the King and worship Him in spirit and in truth. This speaks to our commission. God's given His Son the nations, and we are part of that by leading the nations to faith in Christ and recognizing Jesus as King. And this psalm speaks of our consecration. Look in verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. What does this mean for our lives? It means that we are to fear the Son and love the Son. Notice verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear. That word fear carries with the idea of reverential awe. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. You you tremble in the presence of a majestic king, but also kiss the sun. That 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 is language for relationship. You, you pay homage to the sun. You draw near to the sun in relationship. And so he's saying here: fear the sun and love the sun. the The fear is balanced with great joy. And if you permit me one more Spurgeon quote, I love how he says this: "Holy fear must always be mixed with Christian joy. This sacred compound produces a sweet aroma." Burn. No other on the altar. Fear without joy is torment. Joy without holy fear is presumption. And so we ought to have a great reverential awe for King Jesus, but also a a growing love and relationship with him. Just recently in my here journal, I was reading uh, about the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus took on that mountain, Peter, James, and John, with him, and the Bible says he was transfigured before them. His garments became uh, whiter than anyone could clean them. It was just this—it was this supernatural whiteness as as God kind of pulled back the curtains of glory and and his inward deity shined forth. And he's there on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, shining like the sun. And he's talking to Elijah and Moses and Peter, James, and John are like, "Whoa, this is incredible." And Peter says, Well, uh, uh, th- th- there's Jesus, and there's Elijah, and there's Moses. We ought to build three tabernacles, one for each of them. And when he said that, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. In other words, it's not about Moses, it's not about Elijah, it's about my son Jesus. And when they heard the voice from heaven, they saw the transfigured Christ there on that mountain. This is they fell down in fear reverential awe. But then something interesting happens. Jesus comes and he touches them. And he says, do not fear. He drew close to them. And that, To me, that passage speaks of the, the transcendence of Christ, but also the imminence of Christ, that he draws near to us so we can have a relationship with him. And for the Christian, you read passages like Psalm 2 and you know the Mount of Transfiguration, other passages, we ought to have this, this healthy balance of fear, And friendship when it comes to Jesus. We ought to stand in awe of who he is. He's a majestic, transcendent, glorious king. Amen? But he's our savior. He's our friend. He loves us. He walks with us and he talks with us. I believe Psalm 2 is all about that balance between fear and friendship with the Lord. And so there are some implications of Psalm 2 for the Christian. But again, Psalm 2 takes us to a 30,000-foot perspective. Look at the big picture of where everything is headed. And hopefully this gives you and it gives me a confidence that when it's all said and done, Jesus gets the glory as he deserves